Exodus 19, uh, 1 through 8, 21 through 25, and Exodus 20, 1 through 21. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the, excuse me, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on the eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the inequity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is beneath them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that the Lord your God is giving you, that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and of the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off, and said to Moses, 
You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. You shall, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by the steps to my altar. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. The word of the Lord. Amen. Friends, let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we look back to uh, that uh, remarkable moment many, 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 many years ago uh, when you met with your people at the foot of Mount Sinai and you called them into a covenant with yourself. And there you entered into a relationship with your people um, that we still benefit from today. In fact, this church service is in some sense a successor of that meeting between you and your people so long ago. And yet we know now a better access, a, a more intimate covenant, a closer relationship with you. And Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will now enable us to know the goodness and the sweetness and the kindness of your mercy to us in the covenant we now enjoy by looking at the covenant you then instituted. Will you grant us to sit at your feet and learn from you? And will you let grant us to so know you and so know what you have done for us and so know what you have accomplished for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that we would be a people here at Emmanuel who love to obey, for whom obeying you is our joy and an expression of love to you. Will you grant this and will you overcome all within our hearts that stands in opposition to you and to your holiness in our lives. And so we ask for your intervention now and open our hearts that we may receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, uh, turn back to the Exodus reading. We're jumping into Exodus. Um, we're looking at that super long reading. We're not going to look at all of it, just a little bit of it. And I'll tell you why we're getting back into Exodus in just a second. But first, um, I want to point out a problem. I want to set up a problem. Here's the problem. So Christianity, uh, one aspect of it is it demands a comprehensive obedience to God, right? So if you're a Christian, um, central to our identity is a deep commitment to obey God in every area of life. Christianity demands complete obedience to God. However, now that's not a problem, but here's, here's the problem. For a lot of people, and see if that's true for you, for a lot of people, obedience, that word obedience is, is a word that bears dread, at least a little bit. 
So think about your own heart. So when I say Christianity uh, demands and requires comprehensive obedience to God, what does your soul do? Think about it. Um, does your soul go obedience? Yes. Yay. It's my favorite. And do you want to throw a party? Or do you hear the word obedience, comprehensive obedience to God? And do you, does your soul just cringe just a little bit? For a lot of people and for a lot of Christians, there's a little bit or a lot of dread when it comes to the idea of obeying God. So for some, um, we sort of think about Christianity as uh, having like assets and liabilities. So assets are good things that we enjoy and liabilities are things that we kind of put up with uh, because the assets are worth it. And for some of us, obedience is in the liability category. It's something we kind of put up with the idea that we have to comprehensive obey, uh, obey, comprehensively obey God because it, it, we put up with it because there's other things that make it worth it. And so it was just kind of like, ugh, we're kind of indifferent to it, but we'll put up with it. For others, however, it's a little darker. When you think about comprehensive obedience to God, it brings up areas of guilt or even shame. And then for others, we think about comprehensive obedience to God, and there's a little bit of us that's suspicious of it, that we're afraid that obedience to God is like a little bit of a leaven of oppression that's sort of baked into religion. We're afraid that this idea that we have to obey God in every area of our life can become weaponized, and we use that against other people to somehow oppress them in some way. There's different ways, but for some of us, obedience bears some aspect of dread. And I want to argue, Emmanuel, that that is an absolutely massive problem. In fact, as so long as obedience bears dread, um, our Christian lives will be stunted. And what I want to show you today is that in the Bible, Christian obedience is a word of love. Christian obedience is a response of love to God's kindness and mercy and grace. Christian obedience is like a kind of sign language of love to God. We respond to God's love shown to us by loving him back, not just with our words, because everybody knows that love is not exclusively or even finally expressed in words. It Love, true love, has to be expressed in deeds. And therefore, the, for the Christian... We obey by our actions, not out of duty, but out of joy because we have sat under the love of God. And I want to show you that by returning to this really critical moment in the book of Exodus. So quick background. Before the pandemic hit, so a little bit over a year ago, we were in the middle of a series walking through the book of Exodus. When the pandemic hit, for a variety of reasons, we paused that uh, series. Now we're coming back to it. And here's part of why Exodus is so important. The whole rest of the Bible looks back to the story of Exodus. So that if you grasp the story of Exodus really deeply, then the rest of the Bible begins to make more sense. On the other hand, if you don't really grasp the story of Exodus, then everything, in the re everything else in the rest of the Bible is harder to grasp. And today, our reading is one of the most important moments in the story of Exodus, which is one of the most important books in the whole Bible. And here's why this reading is so important. This is the moment when God 
and Israel get engaged to each other. Sort of, not exactly. But God and Israel enter into or agree to enter into a committed relationship. Now, in we call that committed relationship a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and Israel responds by saying yes to those promises. And that relationship or that covenant then sets a pattern for how God and God's people relate to each other all through the rest of the Bible and right down to this day and this service here at Emmanuel Church. And it's this covenant between God and God's people, this special relationship that motivates obedience, that makes obedience animated by love and by joy. So what I want to do today is look at God's covenant and how it motivates obedience. And I want to show you three things about God's covenant. God's covenant is preemptive. God's covenant is intimate. God's covenant is missional. And when you understand those three aspects, you'll see why God's covenant animates obedience. First of all, God's covenant is preemptive. Remember the story of Exodus. So uh, at the beginning of the story of Exodus, Israel has been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And Egypt is spectacularly powerful. They're holding all the cards. Israel... An enslaved nation has zero power, and there's no reason to think that Israel can ever gain their own freedom. But then, in the story of Exodus, God interrupts everybody. So first, God interrupts Moses. That's the burning bush story. Moses wasn't looking for God. God was looking for Moses, and God drafts Moses into his service. Then, after drafting Moses, God interrupts Pharaoh. Pharaoh thought that he was God. Uh, God, the real God, disabuses Pharaoh of that idea. And then God also interrupts Israel. Uh, Israel wasn't really expecting God to do anything. Uh, And Israel ended up playing next to no role in their own rescue and in their own liberation. God interrupts everybody in Exodus. God interrupts Pharaoh with a justice that Pharaoh cannot resist. And then God interrupts Israel with a love that they could not imagine. The Lord, Emmanuel, the Lord of Exodus is an interrupting God. He interrupts everybody. And it's worth asking the question, to what extent has God interrupted your life? Because I promise you, Emmanuel, that the God of the Bible has every intention of interrupting your life. And if you knew what that meant, it would make you rejoice. Back to the story. Because when God leads Israel out of Egypt, what he does is when they escape Egypt, he doesn't take them first to a really fertile land. Rather, he takes them to a deserted mountain, the mountain of Sinai. And that's where we pick up the story today. Because here at Mount Sinai, God kind of gets down on one knee and proposes. He's not proposing literal marriage, although this relationship gets described as a marriage later on. But what he's doing in this story is he's proposing, God is proposing that God and Israel enter into a covenant, a relationship. Now, a covenant is a relationship that is far more binding and permanent than a friendship. And it is far more intimate than a contract. Okay, now slow down. Because if you notice, the second half of our reading is the Ten Commandments. I'm sure you've heard of the Ten Commandments. 
Now, here's the thing though. You can't understand the 10 commandments until you grasp God's promises and his covenant that he was making with them in the same moment, just before. So look at chapter 19, verse four, towards the beginning of the reading, it says this. The Lord says to Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, what I want to show you is that God's covenant is always preemptive. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. I mean that God takes the initiative and God does all the heavy lifting for Israel's salvation. Um, Somebody in my family uh, some time ago uh, was miles and miles and miles out to sea on a fishing boat. And he became really, really ill. In fact, he was in danger of death. And he fell unconscious and he was utterly helpless. Um, And and the only way he could be saved is if somebody called the Coast Guard. So the Coast Guard flew out and uh, the helicopter came out. It was really dramatic. Rescued him, airlifted him to safety. He was unconscious the whole time, woke up in the hospital. Now, he contributed nothing to his rescue. And that's how God rescued Israel. The way it says it in the text is that God says, I bore you on eagles' wings. I airlifted you, Israel, out of Egypt when you were helpless. God's covenant with Israel is preemptive. He took the first step. He took the initiative. And all through the relationship, God does all the heavy lifting. He does all the things that really matter. And here's what's important. You have to internalize that reality in order to understand the Ten Commandments. For instance, think about the first commandment. So chapter 20, verse 3, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, what God is saying there is he's saying, Israel, uh, I want your total and exclusive loyalty and allegiance to me for forever. That's what God is saying to Israel and to us. Now, let me ask you a question exclusive allegiance. Do you think that's a restrictive thing? Or do you think that's a liberating thing? Now, I don't know about you, but I I know for sure, if somebody random person comes up to me and says, Jim, I want, I demand your complete allegiance and I want your total uh, loyalty for forever. I'd respond to the person by saying, what, are you kidding me? Uh, I don't know who you are. Please step away. Bug off. I don't, want anything to do with you, right? It would feel oppressive and restrictive and terrible. But that's absolutely not what the Lord is doing here, neither with Israel nor for you. Let me say it this way. If God has not interrupted your life yet, like if you don't really deeply know God or you haven't been known by God, then his command of exclusive allegiance will probably feel restrictive and maybe oppressive. But put yourself in the shoes of Israel. If you've been airlifted out of slavery and death and given liberty and life, then that experience will call forth from you trust. You will trust your liberator. If you've been liberated, you will trust your liberator. And that trust in your liberator will mature into loyalty. You will want to be loyal to your liberator. Let me say it this way. Exclusive allegiance is liberating when that exclusive allegiance is directed 
toward your liberator. And God bore Israel on eagles' wings from slavery to freedom. And therefore, Israel at the mountain of Sinai, they wanted to respond by giving their full allegiance to the Lord who was their savior, rescuer, and liberator. What I'm trying to show you is that God's preemptive covenant animated, motivated Israel's obedience. But then there's more because God's covenant is not only preemptive, it's also deeply intimate. And it's the, and the intimacy of God's covenant with his people also animates obedience. So go back to verse or chapter 19, verse four. It says this, I bore you on eagle's wings and importantly, I brought you to myself. The Lord says, I brought you to myself. Now this is crucial. The goal of God's rescue of Israel was always relationship with himself. The goal of God's rescue of Israel was not just political liberation. That was important and that was included. But God's ultimate goal was to bring Israel to himself. That is to say, into a relationship of intimacy with himself. And you can see that in the next verse. Look at verse 5, chapter 19, verse 5. He says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be, this is crucial, my treasured possession among all peoples. Now, mark the word treasured possession. Because that word treasured possession describes a king's treasure that holds the king's greatest affection. And what God is promising Israel here is this. He's saying, Israel, you will be the object of my deep affection. The Lord called Israel and rescued Israel because he wanted to enjoy relationship with them. And Emmanuel, that was God's plan from the very beginning. From the very beginning, the very first chapters of the Bible, this was always the plan. So if you read Genesis and if you read the story of how God created everything, he creates the world, right? And then after creating everything, he has, do you remember this? A Sabbath, a day off. Now, God's Sabbath, God's day off was not just a day off. And it certainly wasn't like a work-life balance thing. It wasn't like God at the end of a week of work was like, man, that was a hard day, a hard work, week of work. I need a day off. I need to put my feet up. That's not what the Sabbath is about. The point of the Sabbath, especially God's Sabbath, is that God, having created everything and having created people, God and God's people were supposed to rest together in mutual love and affection on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was supposed to extend for all time. It was supposed to be the day without end where God and God's people could rest together and enjoy each other, which is to say Genesis teaches us that God created the whole world so that God and God's people could enjoy relationship with each other. That was God's purpose in creating the world. That was God's purpose in rescuing Israel. And that is also one of the aims of God's commandments. The commandments are meant to train us in what it looks like to love God and live in close intimacy with him. So for instance, go back to the 10 commandments and think about the commandment to observe the Sabbath. Why is the Sabbath in the 10 commandments? Why does it make the top 10? Well, again, it's not just a work-life balance thing. That's part of it, but it's more than that. The Sabbath is in the Ten Commandments in part 
because it was meant to train Israel that the greatest aim of their life was not to be measured by their work or their achievements. It was not to be measured by their resume or their accomplishments. The greatest aim of their life was to rest with God, living by his grace alone and enjoying their new identity as God's treasured possession. And if that identity, being God's treasured possession, if that doesn't animate you, then the Sabbath will just be a day off and it will never really satisfy. But on the other hand, if your Sabbath is all about resting in your identity as God's treasured possession that you've gained by grace and not by your efforts, then Sabbath becomes a sweet enjoyment of intimacy with God. And that's what the commandments are meant to train us in, to train us in what it looks like to enjoy constant intimacy of God's covenant. I could show you the same thing from the other commandments, but let's keep going. We said that God's covenant is preemptive. Secondly, God's covenant is intimate. But then finally, thirdly, God's covenant is also missional. Take a look at chapter 19, verse 6. It says this, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, focus on the words kingdom of priests and holy nation. Both the idea of being a kingdom of priests and being a holy nation imply a mission. So think about a priest. A priest is somebody who knows God, who has access to God, and somebody who, uh, on the basis of that access to God, represents God well to other people. And Israel, in this covenant, God was calling Israel to to do both, to know God well, to enjoy uh, a measure of access to God, and then, on the basis of that access to God, to represent God to others, and particularly to other nations. And one of the ways that Israel did that, one one of the ways that they could represent God well, is by being holy, by being a holy nation. Now, to be holy means to be set aside for a particular purpose, or another way to say it is this, to be holy is to be different in a good way. To be different like God is different. To uh, represent God by reflecting God's character. Now again, that mission to uh, represent God by reflecting his character, that mission animates and gives depth to all of the commandments. Let me give you a few examples. Think about the commandment, don't murder. Now, I hope we all agree that we shouldn't murder, right? There's lots of reasons why we shouldn't murder. But here's one that's specific to the people of God. God, the God of the covenant, is a God who loves to give life. He created life in the beginning. He redeems life in the great stories of redemption, And if we're going to be a people who know that God and reflect that God well, then we must be a people who do not take life, but rather defend life and promote life. It means that we're going to be a people that give particular attentiveness and attention to valuing life whose value has sometimes been disputed. We're going to want to treasure that life. 
And so in some contexts, that's going to be treasuring um, uh, uh, black and brown and Asian life. And it's gonna, be, it's gonna mean treasuring the life of the unborn. And it's gonna be treasuring uh, uh, people who are often overlooked, whether it be the poor or whatever else it might be. It's gonna be treasuring the lives of those who have hurt us and those whom we have good reason to hate. That is to say, our enemies. We're going to be a people who reflect God's love of life by treasuring the lives of others, particularly those whose value might be disputed. Can you see how reflecting God and that mission to reflect God animates the commandments? Or think about the, uh, the commandment, do not steal. There's many reasons why we shouldn't steal, but here's one. The God of the covenant is a God who gives with limitless generosity. He gave life in creation. He gives salvation to his people. God is a generous God. And in Jesus Christ, God gives all that he is to us for our salvation. And therefore, if we're going to be his people, we're going to reflect that character, then certainly we must not steal, but rather we must be a people eager to give. We've got to give away with giggles because we belong to a God of generosity. Now, everybody believes, everybody agrees, I hope, that we shouldn't murder, we shouldn't steal, but God, in the covenant, gives his people an added mission and a purpose that motivates it and extends it and makes us radical in the pursuit of it. Let me ask you this question. Is your obedience to God motivated by a sense of mission that we are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? I could keep going. Think about uh, the commandments about family and sexuality. So in the commandments, we're supposed to honor our parents. Well, why? Well, we find out from the rest of scripture that God wants the family, especially the covenant family, to be a reflection of his relationship with his people. And so the idea is that people should be able to look at godly families and get a little glimpse of how God works in his covenant. And therefore, we are to, families are to be places of honor for each other. Or the commandment, don't commit adultery. Why does God's why should God's people never dream of committing adultery? Well, because God is a God who never cheats on his people and he always keeps his promises. And when you really know that God, it moves God's people to come to God and surrender our sexualities and surrender our families to him and say, God, regulate my sexuality, regulate my family so that all that I do in every aspect of who I am might reflect your character. We want to be about mission. And Christian sexuality is actually regulated by God's mission. And until that comes clear to us, it will feel restrictive, but when it comes clear to us, it will be the lifestyle of liberation. You see, when the mission of God and the mission of representing God lands upon our souls, then we'll know ourselves to be God's treasured possession. And when we feel ourselves to have been born on eagle's wings and rescued from slavery and sin and death, then we will feel the beauty of God's commandments and we will aspire to a deeper and deeper obedience in every area of our life. It will be the sign language of our love to God and the sign language of our liberation. Except something else will happen too. And I got to point this out. The more we know God, the more we will aspire to a deeper obedience. But 
we will also see how far short we fall of that obedience. See, this is a little bit of a strange thing, Emmanuel. The closer you get to God, the more you feel your sin and your failure. Have you ever noticed that? It's hinted in the reading. So God establishes this wonderful covenant with Israel and the people say, yes, but then they get scared. Do you notice they're scared after they hear the 10 commandments? And then they're not allowed to get too close. Uh, We're used to social distancing in the last year, but God in this passage and throughout the Old Testament enforces a spiritual distancing. God says, you're going to be my treasured possession. But on the other hand, God says, don't come too close to the mountain. Why? Why the intimacy and the distance? Well, the reason is Israel wasn't holy yet. Israel was liberated from political slavery, but they weren't yet liberated from their enslavement to sin. And if you read the rest of the book of Exodus, and we will see this, you will find out that almost immediately Israel fails to keep the covenant. They fail in their mission to be holy. They fail and they cheat on God and they undermine their intimacy with God. And all of that means that the only way forward is if God preemptively intervenes and interrupts again and establishes a new and better covenant. God has to preemptively rescue them and us from our enslavement to sin. And that's, friends, what Jesus does. Because when Jesus comes hundreds and hundreds of years later, he's renewing this covenant and replacing it with an even better one. When Jesus is on the cross, he bears the sin of the world on his shoulders. And in that moment, that was God bearing us on eagles' wings from our enslavement to sin. And there upon the cross, Jesus reached out to his enemies, those whom he had good reason to reject because they had rejected him already. But he reached out to his enemies and he was arranging their pardon and not only their pardon, their adoption so that the enemies of God could be transformed into the children of God and become the objects of God's fatherly affection. Jesus fulfills upon the cross all of Israel's mission to be holy and to be priests because he perfectly represents God to us and us to God. And the result, Emmanuel, is this, that for 2,000 years, Jesus Christ has been interrupting people's lives and awaking us to our enslavement to sin and then showing us how Jesus takes the initiative. He interrupts our lives. He does all the heavy lifting to rescue us. Has Jesus interrupted your life? If not, he wants to now, today, now. And if he has interrupted your life and yet nevertheless the dread of his commandments has grown and your distance from him has grown, he wants to interrupt that as well. Emmanuel, I said at the beginning and I asked, what is it that comes to your soul when you think about obedience? Is it a word of indifference? Is it a word about which you're cynical? nobody believes in obeying these things anymore. Even those who claim they do, maybe your heart says. Is it a word that brings up shame and guilt and all of your failure? Or is it the sweet way you respond to the love of Jesus Christ? Emmanuel, let me be bold with you. Take the dread of obedience and take the shame 
of disobedience and take the indifference or maybe the cynicism in your soul. Take all of that and place that right in front of your eyes and look at him because that is the chain of your enslavement. And Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead to break those chains and lift you on eagle's wings and give you a liberty that you cannot imagine right now. So take those chains to Jesus Christ and you will meet him, not at the mountain of Sinai, but at a better mountain, the hill of Calvary. And there he will break those chains and he will lift you up on his shoulders of mercy. And there you will know yourselves to be loved, loved right down to your core, despite your failings. And you will be liberated from shame. And that will be the beginning of an intimate bond of love that will transform obedience from dread to joy. And that's how we will be free. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.